morning. You can join me for the last reading in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, starting with verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, an accept, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Can you throw the slide up from the last song that we sang, one of the ones that has the word hallelujah on it? Real quick. There we go little refresher Hebrew for you, Hebrew 101 refresher. That word hallelujah, when we use it, we think of it just as a form of praise, just a, song, a word to say, you know, singing praise to God. Let me break it down in Hebrew for you a little bit. Joel is now watching because he's taking Hebrew right now. He's like, I'm checking him out. Let's see if he does this right. So the first part of it, halal, that, that's Hebrew for praise. So the halal just means the word praise. The you after it is the Hebrew suffix, which is second person plural, you all, all of you. So praise all of you, and then the ya, that's, it's gone through Latin, so it kind of gets adulterated. That should be Y-A. It's the shortened version of Yahweh tacked on at the end. And so what the word hallelujah says is all of you praise Yahweh. So when we sing this, hallelujah in the presence of my enemies, the weapons of war that we have been given is the call to the nations to praise God. So I just, I love this song because the way that they use hallelujah, I, I don't know if the author of the song was thinking of it that way because um, later he says, you know, I'm singing this song in the middle of my enemies and stuff, and that's appropriate too. But our weapons of war, the things that we use to fight is praise. And so we, we are commissioned to go to the nations and say, all of you, praise Yahweh. And, and that's great news. So I just, I just, I love that song, so I just wanted to share that with you. Um, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, they'll meet you at the back there. And um, in the meantime, before we start 
the sermon. Let's let's open in the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the commission that you have given us to go and to make disciples, to tell the nations to praise Yahweh. Lord, that uh, in the midst of that promise, you said, I will be with you until the end of the age, that all authority has been given to you and that you walk with us in that commission. And so, Lord, we need not fear as we stand in the presence of our enemies and sing your praises um, because you are with us. Uh, what an encouraging word this morning. And Lord, I pray for the hostages in Haiti as they need to be reminded of this very message, that their weapons of war are praise. Lord, I pray that this morning you would remind uh, some of the hostages of the story of, from Acts when Paul is in jail in Philippi and he and Silas are singing praises in the middle of the night and the, the earth shook in an earthquake that is so weird because it broke chains free. It, it opened um, shackles. And I pray that they would be in that same mindset, that same attitude, that no matter what is on the other side of their, their, hust, uh, their captivity, Lord, that in the midst of it, they are praising you. And Lord, we pray for the hostage takers, for the people who have captured them. Lord, would you soften their hearts? Would you open their minds? And like at Philippi, would you cause them to hear the words that are being spoken and repent? And Lord, we're thankful that we have video evidence. We have evidence that the hostages are still alive. Thank you for that mercy. Um, we pray for the families of the hostages, that that would be an encouragement to them. And Lord, that that would fuel their desire to pray more and to, um, to seek your glory in the midst of a terrible situation. Have mercy on them. Father, we also want to pray for the folks that we met in the park yesterday, people that we talked to, even casually, just, just chit-chat. Um, how you doing? Uh, have a hot dog. Lord, I pray that, um, that the folks that you brought into our lives, the people that you brought us into contact with, uh, Lord, that we would have begun to plant the seed with them, that you would use us to uh, draw many to yourself. And so we pray your blessing on all of them, um, all the different needs that, that we encountered as well. And Lord, as we now come to the end of the book of Philippians, we pray again, we need your help. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and illuminate the page. Help us to see and to understand. And uh, Lord, would you use your word to transform our hearts? Um, God, you have predestined us to the image of Christ to be conformed to that image. And so, Lord, would you use this morning your word and my speaking to accomplish that purpose in all of our lives? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is not a paid advertisement, but I got to say that the... Uh, the shakaroni uh, uh, pizza is back at Papa John's. And if you've never heard of the shakaroni, it's an extra large pizza, kind of like shack, with extra pepperoni and extra cheese. And so uh, they, I've been seeing the advertisements for it. And apparently, you know, Shaq picks it up and it looks like a normal piece of pizza. When a regular human being picks it up, it looks like a boat because <laughs> he's such a big guy. Um, the reason I mention that is because um, for every shakaroni pizza sold, uh, Papa John's is donating a dollar to the uh, Papa John's Foundation for Building Community. And when they did that last year, they raised $3.6 million for charity. So this is called corporate charity. This is something that, that I've seen done a number of places. Uh, a number of years ago uh, at Starbucks, if you bought something there, they would donate money to fight AIDS in Africa. And if you didn't know, AIDS ravaged Africa. So it was a really bad thing. Um, there's a consultant named Carol Cohn, and she is referred to as the mother of cause marketing. She's the one who kind of brainstormed this whole idea. 
And in a 2009 interview with NPR, she said, companies engaging in social issues have gained tremendous benefits. It's absolutely magic. Businesses must show their humanity. It's no longer a nice to do, it's a have to do. So you're gonna see this more and more. Um, if you go to Panda Express, they'll ask if you wanna round up and donate the money to a local children's hospital. Um, this has just become part of the marketing scheme. Um, there was a survey done in 2010 by the Edelman 2010 Good Purpose Study, and it found that this kind of charity actually drives sales, that people will buy that way. Uh, so here's a question. Is it okay to give in order to receive? I, I, the question is, is it ethical for these companies to say, if you buy this product, I will donate this much money? Um, why is it that these companies are tying their donation to sales? It, it's kind of like they're trying to bribe you into it. Why, instead of holding the money hostage, why not just give the money? And, you know, and, and say this, these things that you're buying are going to go to support it, but we're going to do that. Um, it, it's a, a tricky situation. It's an ethical question. And um, there was, uh, an, in part of that, that interview with NPR, they talked to a Harvard professor and philo uh, a philosopher, a psychologist named Richard Weisbauer. And he said, you should be generous to be generous. You should do what's right because it's right, not because of what you get back. He went on and he said, I worry that, that that's what kids being, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm worried that that's what kids begin to think giving is, serving your needs and other people's needs. And they don't have an image in their head of another kind of giving, a tenacious, low-profile kind of altruism that's really just about the other person and not about you, he said. And I think we're in really deep trouble as a society if that sense of morality for its own sake evaporates. So what, uh, what Dr. Um, Dr. Harvard professor, uh, Weisbord said is basically, um, you should give because it's a good thing to do is to give. And to give to, in order to get something back, he claims muddies it, it sullies it, it, it ruins it. Um, what do you think? Is, that, is it possible to give and get nothing back? To give and, and I mean, true, proper altruism is that idea of giving yourself up for the benefit of another. And um, evolutionists have a really hard time with altruism because why would this one gazelle lead the, the lions away from the, the herd and sacrifice itself? Uh, evolution says that its whole goal in life is to perpetuate its gene pool. And so why would it give itself up? That's a real problem for ethicists. Is, is that the only type of real giving? Well, I'm going to argue, you know, as you're thinking through that, because it's kind of a big philosophical question, I'm going to argue it's impossible. It is ultimately impossible to give without getting anything back. You can't do it. Even if you give money to somebody and the only thing you get back is the feeling that you've done something right, that you feel good about helping that person, you have gotten something for doing it. If you felt nothing, or if you felt this is a bad idea, I think this is really wrong, but here, take it. Um, <laughs> you're not getting anything back, but you probably wouldn't do it then, would you? Well, the reason I bring all this up is because what we're going to see here at the end of the uh, letter to the Philippians, Paul is going to talk about giving and receiving. But what he's going to do for us this morning is he's going to frame that giving and receiving 
in a way that it actually is not a bad thing that you receive back when you give because we're going to put our hope in the right place. So if I was to sum up this whole set, this whole last portion that Lisa read for us this morning in one sentence, this is what I came up with. We're going to see Paul rejoice because of their concern, the Philippians' concern, not from want, but because to their credit, they shared in his trouble. So that's kind of the summation of the thought. Paul will rejoice because of their concern, not from want, but because to their credit, they shared from in their trouble or shared in his trouble. So that, that's the, the game plan here. So let's talk about rejoice. Um, when we talk about rejoicing, it's verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he starts by saying, I rejoiced. Um, we need a refresher real quick. What is joy? What's the difference between joy and happiness? Joy is not the same thing as happiness, though joy can be expressed in happiness. Um, it, the difference between the two, I think the best way to nail it down is what is the source of each one? What is the source of joy versus the source of happiness? So, for example, Friday, I was here at the office. I was sitting in my wingback chair in my office. I had my dog sleeping at my feet. I had some beautiful classical music playing. I had a nice warm cup of coffee sitting next to me, and I had a Philippians commentary opening open in front of me, and I was reading, and I just sat back and smiled. I thought, this is just a lovely feeling. That was, that was happiness. That was just everything felt right at that moment. But 40 minutes earlier, I was super frustrated because I'd been to the ATM at my bank for the second time that day, and it was still closed. The, the ATM was busted. So happiness is dependent on the circumstances. It was the circumstances in my office that everything just lined up nice, and it just felt really pretty, and that generated happiness, but it didn't endure. It, it doesn't stick around. Joy, however, is rooted in something much more permanent than circumstances. So when we have joy, we're rooted in something that, that doesn't come and go. As a matter of fact, joy is rooted in something that we don't have yet but something that we're absolutely sure of in the future. So when circumstances come and go, when circumstances are positive or negative, our joy can remain solid because it's not contingent on that. We're looking towards the future. We're looking towards something that that we're waiting for. And so we could sorrow in joy. We could suffer in joy. We could laugh in joy. When we talk about a biblical sense of joy, rejoicing the way Paul is talking about it, we're looking to something in the future that can't be taken away that nothing in this world can stop. And that's what's rooting our joy. So Paul says that he rejoiced. Um, Why did he rejoice past tense? I thought joy was rooted in the future. It was something that couldn't change, that wasn't going to go away. Well, what's going on is, is joy won't go away, but it can flare up. You can experience more of it or less of it. Um, It can be raging, and, and you're just overwhelmed with joy or it can be threadbare and you're just barely hanging on so there are the the reason i say that is because we don't want to deny that circumstances have any role in it circumstances will affect us we we're, we live in them this is just where we're at so those circumstances can cause our joy to swell or it can cause our joy to ebb but ultimately it can't destroy our joy if, if our joy is in the right place so how can paul rejoice think about his situation right now he's in prison in Rome, he's facing, uh, or about to face the emperor. He's about to go talk to Caesar. 
Um, he has, because he's going to talk to Caesar, he faces the very real potential of being executed. The, C the Caesar could just look at him and go, yep, you're out, and he's gone. Even, even if it doesn't get to that point, while he's in prison now, he faces people who think that they're going to trouble him, they're going to make him jealous by going out and preaching the gospel instead of him, that that's going to somehow bother him. He, he's not only that, but he says earlier, he said, that he's in tears for those who are now enemies of the cross. He's in tears over these people, people who are coming in and saying you have to be circumcised. You have to follow dietary laws. You've you got to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And, and he's in tears over that, and yet he has joy. So what caused his joy to surge? What caused it to, to come up? He says that he rejoiced because now at length, they revived their concern for him. The ESV says at length. Almost every other translation says at last. Why? It sounds kind of like a backhanded compliment, doesn't it? Now at last you revived your, con your concern for me. It's like your sister saying, well, well you know, I finally got your, uh, your birthday card. Thank you. You know, it almost sounds like that, doesn't it? I don't think that's what Paul is aiming for. I think what he's saying is at last you've had the opportunity to, to show your concern to revive it, not as in you weren't concerned for me, because the very next sentence he says, uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So one of the commentators I thought made a good point. He said, maybe in the letter they sent to Paul, they said, now at last we can get the, the support to you that we'd wanted to. And so he's just mirroring their words back to him. But it's not a backhanded compliment. He is rejoicing. His joy has surged because what he received was the church at Philippi has sent Epaphroditus to him. The church at Philippi has sent cash to him to help support him. The church at Philippi has probably written him a letter saying how much they, they love him and they're really concerned for him and they want him to be able to get out of prison and, and get back to the work of the gospel. And so when he receives that, that causes his joy to swell, causes his joy to, to rise up. It's, it's like the tide coming in because of this. But his joy is not rooted in what the Philippians can do for him. It can't be. Because if, he, if it was, it would come and go with their ability to provide. It has to be rooted in something else. And that's why, if you're paying attention, and I know you all are, you noticed I, I, I jumped over a, a couple of words in this. I rejoiced in the Lord. And that's the clue. That's what we talk about joy. What is our joy rooted in? Christian joy, biblical Christian joy, is rooted in the fact that Jesus has come for us. We sang it this morning. He died for sinners. That we have something in the future that is cemented. It cannot be moved. If you kill us, to die is gain. If you torture us, if you punish us, you're not, you can't even touch what's waiting for us in the future. I pray that that's what the hostages in Haiti are reminded of is they have this joy. They have this thing rooted in the future. I rejoiced in the Lord. But don't miss that the Philippians had a role in that. They had a, a portion in that. By expressing their concern for Paul, by supporting him, by, by sending things to him, people, they, they met his needs in a very real way. But he doesn't count on them doing it. He's rejoicing in the Lord. He's, he's looking toward the Lord to, to uh, provide. And that's what he, where he goes to next is he's going to show us where that joy can be rooted. How do you get that joy? So... 
that sounds great, Paul. Very theoretical. How on earth am I supposed to connect with that? How do I get that joy? I don't know, I don't know how to find that joy. My joy kind of seems to come and go sometimes. Um, how do I do that? Well, he's going to show us. He's going to tell us right here. So he, he's rejoicing, but not from want. It's important that it's not from want. He's not rejoicing because he had some huge lack in his life and nobody was going to meet it. And the only way it was going to be met is if the, the Philippians showed up. He had hope. He was rooted in the fact that it was in the Lord. And so he says, I'm not in want. I know that the Lord's going to provide. He used you to provide, which is great. And so here's his attitude. Listen to how he, he processes this. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says, I am not speaking of need. He, he's not looking at his life and go, oh, poor me. I've learned to be content. Now, when he says, I've learned to be to content in whatever situation I'm in, that is not some sort of empty, mindless, zen situation where he's just, oh, you know, it's all going to be okay. It, it's not some stoic approach to life where it says, change what you can and, and don't worry about the rest. And, and I'm just going to charge right through and be my own man. He, he's learned the secret of being content. He's learned that there's more to it than looking inward. As a matter of fact, inward will never make you content. He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. Have you thought about that? I, have you ever worried about how am I going to face plenty? What, what am I going to do when I have enough? How will I survive having an abundance? We never think that way, do we? We think the other side of the equation. What am I going to do if I get hungry? How will, I, how will I face perpetual hunger in my life? What will happen if I have to face need? We, we live on the other side of that equation. We live on the side of the equation where we need to ask ourselves, how in the world, Paul, can I face abundance? How can I endure this? And, and that's what we were talking about a couple weeks ago with that book, uh, Apathyism. One of the things that contributes to apathy towards God is abundance, safety, comfort. So Christian, you need to have a plan to face your abundance. You've you got to have a plan for it. So Paul says, I have learned the secret. Okay, Paul, what's the secret? And he doesn't say it here, does he? He does, actually. He's already told us. He's told us repeatedly in this book. So let's go back and just look at a couple of them really quick. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the secret of being content, is to say, whether I live or die, it's all towards my benefit. It's, I, I gain either way. For me to continue to live is Christ. And in the context we saw that in, that is, I get to continue to serve you, Philippians. I get to continue to serve the church. I get to continue doing what Christ has sent me to do. To me, for me to live is Christ. And to die, I get promoted. I, t I take a step up. I'm now freed from this body of sin, waiting for it to be resurrected, and I get to go be present with the Lord. That's not a loss. I, can you be content with that kind of long-term vision? It, it's not a short-term. He's not saying, for me to live is uh, my retirement account, or for me to live is my children, or for me to live is building the future, or you know, making my company, or whatever it is. He, it, that's a short-term view. 
His long-term view is for me to live as Christ and to die, that's even better. So one of the ways that Paul is demonstrating us, he's walking us through, how do you be content in whatever situation, especially in abundance? Don't count on the abundance. Understand it's going to come and go. It'll, it'll be there and it won't. The next one is a longer read, and I think it's probably the most important part of the book. It, I, I'm going to read the whole thing to you again anyway. Not the whole book. <laughs> Everybody's looking at the door. Right? Ah! No, there, this is the cent- what I think is really the central message of the book. And so here's the other clue. Here's how Paul has learned to be content. Here's the mystery that he's uncovered. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ existed in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. And if you remember when we looked at that, I said that grasp was not stealing. It was being used to his own benefit. He didn't say, I'm divine, and therefore, I'm going to use that to my own benefit. Instead, he emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean he set his divinity aside. He was still fully divine. He emptied himself of those benefits, those prerogatives that he could have had. had He he just said, look, I'm, I'm God. I get away with this. And instead, he added to himself a human nature full human nature, body, soul, mind, everything that we are, minus the sin, because that's not part of human nature. It's an alien invader. He set aside the prerogatives of heaven, the privileges of myriads of angels shouting out how holy he is. He set that aside and said, I'm going to take on the form of humanity. But not just any humans. He could have come and been a great ruler and a great king. And, and it still wouldn't have been worth what he's really worth. He went even farther. He took the form of a servant. Jesus Christ gave up. He set aside the privileges of something that you will never have. Bad news, folks, you will never be divine. It's, it's just not going to happen. Jesus Christ was divine, remained divine. He set aside the privileges of divinity and took on humanity. He lost more than you will ever have to gain you. His death on the cross. What did he do? Why did he do that? Did he do it for uh, purely altruistic reasons? I get nothing out of this. No, he gets huge benefits out of this, tremendous benefits. He gets a name that is above every name. That at his name, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. He gave up everything to gain something even better. He, He gave up his prerogatives as divine in order to gain a people to himself so that his glory wouldn't be added to. You can't add to increase it, but you can amplify the shouting of it. Hallelujah. And so his glory is shared and made known with people and people and people, and many more people are brought in. He set aside his privileges and faced the cross because of the joy that was before him. He was looking forward to that. So when Paul says, look, this, this mind that Jesus had, it's yours. 
have this mind which is yours in Christ. He, he has given everything for you. Can you set aside those kind of things? Can you adopt that long-term goal, that long-term vision that Jesus had and not worry so much about what's going on in the midterm, but look towards the end? That's, that's hope. That's rejoicing. That's looking forward to the future. The other thing that Paul learned, this is much more personal, comes from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he just did? How did I learn to be content? I pray. And I pray with this expectant hope that God is going to provide. He's going to take care of everything. Pray. Let your, your prayers and supplications be known with thanksgiving. Lord, I'm already thanking you for the answer that you're about to give, and I don't even know what it is. That is how he could root his hope so firmly in the future is he's praying. He's, he's making the, the things that are happening in the midterm, his imprisonment, his, his, he's probably running low on cash, and so the the Philippians' money showing up when it did was, was great. And he could express that to God, but he's expressing it not in desperation, like, oh, I'd better pray I've done everything else. But he's expressing it with thanksgiving. Lord, you're going to do it. You're going to meet this. I can't wait to see how you're going to do it. So the Philippians show up, and he goes, I rejoice. You showed up. God answered my prayer. So how can you, how can you root yourself in that kind of hope? Pray. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray always. Pray expectantly. And then he goes on in, in uh, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. There's peace again. He wants us to meditate on who God is. Is there any truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is, is anything honorable? Is anything more honorable than God? Think on these things. What you think about is going to be what you believe. What you listen to the most will become what you believe. So saturate yourself in these truths. Who is God? Meditate on that. Think about that. Pour that into your brain for a while. I just got a text from a friend this week asking a very hairy theological question about the intertrinitarian will. And it was a blast to talk about it. We went back and forth about, did Jesus, the Son, the eternally begotten Son of God, did he sublimate his will to the Father before he became human in Jesus? That's splitting some pretty fine hairs, isn't it? It's the delight to think about those big questions because the, the question then makes you contemplate well, if God knows everything, then would he have two different wills and one would need to be put underneath another one? Or does God know all things and therefore he understands exactly what the right will? I mean, it was, it was those kind of fun questions. Think about these things. Now, don't, you don't have to get as hairy as me. I admit I'm, I'm a huge theology nerd. And maybe you could take that down a couple of notches. But, but contemplate that stuff. Read your scriptures. And when you read them, and something jumps out at you. You hear a verse and you hear something in there and you go, I hadn't thought of that before. Write it down and contemplate that. Think on these things. Let the word of God saturate your brain and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ because you're also praying about that. So, so work on those things. That's where Paul gets this attitude. He has learned the secret of being content through these practices, through doing these things. And they're ours. We can do them as well. But we have a role in that, and we need to practice these things. That's why Paul tells us to do them. He doesn't say, here's a theology, now think about it. Isn't that great? He says, now go do it. So let that happen. So Paul could have this sense of inner peace. He could rejoice in situations where he's in need, where he's abounding, where he's hungry, where he's doing fine. He can rejoice through all of that because his mind is fixed on eternity. Therefore, he can be earthly good. So what about the Philippians? What do they get out of this? Because that's, that's the question. That's, that's the Papa John's question of the morning. <laughs> I feel like I should have Papa John's up on the screen behind me or something. <laughs> the Papa John's question of the morning. Is it okay to give and receive at the same time? What do the Philippians get out of this? Well, listen to the rest of this section. He, he goes on. This is, this is what they got out of it. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What did the Philippians get out of this? It says that they shared in his trouble. So again, what we hear in here is Paul was not like always in, in the black on his, his books at, at uh, the ministry center. There were times where he was in the red. They were running low on money. Um, you provided for my need again and again the Philippians get out of this, it was kind of, him to kind of them to share in his trouble. And he says, not that I sought the gift. I wasn't interested in the money. The money, would, God's going to provide that somehow. What makes me delight the most is it increased to your credit. The, the fruit of your giving was to your benefit. The heart of giving that you gave comes back to you. And so that's why he describes this gift that they sent to him as a fragrant offering a sacrifice pleasing to God. When you go in to the temple and you offer the sacrifices and it's pleasing to God, it, it cancels sin. It cancels that sin. It is a fellowship offering. It, it unites you to God in fellowship. It's an offering to God where you say, I am trusting in you because I've just taken from my herd and I've slaughtered it and put it on the altar for you. And so that's what benefits to them is he looks and he says, this is to your benefit. This is to your credit. You get something out of giving. You join Paul in what he's doing, which is not worrying about the immediate, but looking to the future. That's why he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. Now, does that mean that if you put 20 bucks in the offering plate this morning, when you go out in the, in the parking lot, you're going to find a $20 bill wafting past? You ever hear that story? You know what? You forget one part of that. Somebody lost a $20 bill. God didn't just make it come out of nowhere. God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver's heart is not rooted in what he gave, 
A cheerful giver's heart is rooted in God. My God will supply all your needs. You can never go bankrupt with God giving your money away, giving your time to somebody else, giving your attention to somebody else. You will never lose in that equation if you do it for the right motives. If we're doing it just to pad our bottom line, if, we, if we're, we're just going to uh, have this campaign so that people come in and, and buy our pizzas, um, therefore we're you know, holding a dollar back, and if you don't do it, this dollar is not going to go there. Um, that kind of almost is selfish. It's, it's not rooted in God's going to provide anyway. The Christian approach is to rejoice, to have that joy, looking to the future and saying, God's going to provide. We know what our, our ultimate destination is. We may not know how we get there, but we know our ultimate, ultimate, ultimate not alternate. <laughs> that's a bad mistake to swap those two words. Our ultimate destination is, is with Christ, and that's good news. So can you be generous in that? Can you be uncomfortable in that? Can you give? And, and the context here, it's not always possible, right? They, they lacked the opportunity for a period of time, and then when the opportunity came, they gave. Now, for us, since we're in the abundance category, not in the need category, the opportunity is probably there a lot more often than it's not. And so we need to be giving. And I'm not talking about, you know, now let's pass the, pay, pass the plate and see how much money we get. I'm talking about much more than just cash. Cash is easy. That's, that's nothing. It doesn't take anything to drop it in the bo box. Please drop it in the box. <laughs> What's really hard is to spend time with somebody else, to give somebody else your attention to give them your presence, to just be with them in the moment, to listen to them when they tell you the same story for the fifth time and not say, yeah, you told me that. If they remembered that, they wouldn't have told you again. Or maybe they just delight in telling the story. Or whatever it is, whatever that person needs, because my God will supply all your needs. And so this is the end of the book of Philippians. This is how it all comes together, is, is with this great admonition to give. And, and when we do that, that is what Paul has in mind when he says, live a life worthy of the gospel. It, it's rooted in who Jesus is. Jesus gave that way. You give that way. That's a life worthy of the gospel. That, that sharing without expecting return from that person, but knowing that my God will provide. He always has. He always will. And so the, the, Paul wraps up his letter. He ends the, the last thing uh, in verse 21. Greet the saints in Christ Jesus. Hey, saints. Hi, in Christ Jesus. You have been greeted. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Remember we talked about the, the, the advance of the gospel? Paul doesn't count the advance of the gospel by numbers. He counts it by it has gone out. The gospel has gone into Caesar's household. The saints greet you, including especially those in Caesar's household. That's the extent of the gospel. And so that's, that's how he ends. I'm going to save the last verse for the benediction. So we're, we're not going to go there. I'm going to, I'm going to do it, but we'll just do it as the benediction, I promise. So with that, we're done with the book of Philippians. Uh, what do you say we start back over again? I just want to go back to the beginning and do it again. It's been such a great book. I've really enjoyed this one. Um, where we're going to go next is um, we're going to look at the book of Philippians. Or Philippians. <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> Uh, we're sticking with the phi theme, Philemon. So it's Phil at the beginning. So we'll do Philemon next. Uh, a couple of reasons for that. One is we've got three weeks until the beginning of Advent. So I figure I can do Philemon in three weeks. Um, but the other thing is um, 
as, as I look across evangelicalism in general, just the broad swath of whatever we mean by the word evangelical, I'm beginning to see a lot of fighting and, and fragmentation. And uh, one article I read talked about the great sort, where churches are beginning to shuffle and, and people are moving around. And we're an evangelical free church. As an evangelical free church, we have drawn the border around the edges of evangelicalism and not defined it really narrowly inside. And so it's my heart, my desire that we learn how to stay together, that, that we, by God's grace, may the great sort pass over us. Um, that, would be, that would be my goal. So when we look at Philemon, he's going to talk about one of those contentious issues, one of those explosive issues, slavery. That's, that's one of the big issues these days is racism. Now, it wasn't, we'll, we'll understand race or slavery back then, but that's one of those issues. But the way Paul handles it is he's begging for unity. And so that's why we're going to look at Philemon. I, I, I want us to um, just take some time to focus on what does it mean to be united with people you don't always necessarily agree with. Um, you know how big your church would be if you unite with people who only agree with you? You little two, two whole chairs in there. There's a, a, a joke about a, a Baptist who got shipwrecked on an island. And he's there for a couple of years. And, and finally, a boat comes by. And they see him. He signal him. And they come off the boat. And they go to him. And they say, you know, he's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let me show you around what I've built. And here's, here's the marketplace that I built. And here's my house. And, and I've got this. And, and here's my church. I built a church. And they went, oh, really? What's that other one? Oh, that's my old church. I don't go there anymore. We want to avoid that, so we're hoping that Paul will lead us through that in Philemon uh, so that we're not down to a church of just one. So that, that's our hope and our goal. With that, let me close off the book of Philemon, uh, Philemon Philippians. They both begin with P-H-I-L. I'm going to mess this up um, and, uh, and pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we do want to be a pupil marked by living lives worthy of the gospel. And by that, Lord, we mean that we want to be people in whom the gospel is personified, that we live by faith alone in Christ alone. We trust in you. And Lord, like we heard this morning, that, that we would not be concerned with the situation today or tomorrow or worry about that or lose our joy. But Lord, we would be looking to the future and to know that our hope is secure behind the veil, that the anchor has sunk back there, that we have sure access to God through Jesus Christ. And then we can endure the things that come up every day, the, the, the pressures and the worries, the concerns. But Lord, we handle them in a way that we can rejoice in them as well. Even when the rejoicing is with tears of sorrow, even when the rejoicing is filled with loneliness, even when the rejoicing is an empty chair next to us, an, an empty place at our table. Lord, that we can rejoice in all things. And again, I say rejoice. Lord, please give us that kind of faith. Give us that kind of hope we ask in Christ's name. Amen.